0: Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church, and we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open His Word together and examine His incredible life changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. Good evening. Go ahead and open those Bibles up to the book of Acts, and that's where we will be again tonight in Acts chapter 2. My wife asked what I was preaching tonight. I said Acts chapter 2, and I don't think I'm repeating anything I preached this morning, which essentially was also from Acts chapter 2. So, there's a lot in this chapter, and we're going to try to cover the rest of it this evening in our series on the book of Acts, talking about the incredible story of the beginning of the church, how the church was built, uh, how it flourished, how it spread over the, over the uh, earth, and talk just about the, the incredible power of God and the way he, he allowed that to happen. So we'll be in Acts chapter 2 this evening kind of just doing an overview of what we find in the chapter, maybe rethinking some of the things we've always understood from the chapter. I want to start reading here in verse 1, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent, rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. We've got a somewhat remarkable picture given to us here as we start the story. The disciples have, as we know from chapter 1, been in the upper room together. They watched Jesus ascend into heaven At this point, about 10 days ago, and they've been hanging out together. I imagine they've been coming and going, and this has kind of become their headquarters of sorts here in Jerusalem, where they're gathering together and wondering what it is that Jesus has prepared for them because Jesus has told them to go and wait because there was the Holy Spirit that was to come. Well, they get to Pentecost, which is a Jewish feast, as you know, uh, it's also in the Old Testament called the Feast of Weeks, and it celebrates the end of the grain harvest. And we have a lot of verses about it over in Leviticus chapter 23. That uh, comes seven weeks after the Passover, or that's 49 days plus one. So you've got about 50 days after the Passover, you've got this new celebration, this new feast. And We really don't know a lot about it other than just the commandments that are given to us there in Leviticus chapter 23 and over also in the book of Deuteronomy. And we know an offering of grain is given for the people and they had a wave offering of bread. And the best I have been able to find with a wave offering is that they basically just wave it in front of the Lord like that. That's it. You know, it's not necessarily a burnt sacrifice as much as it is a this is yours you know they wave it in front of the Lord and grain the same way they would have seven lambs one bull and two rams would be offered to the Lord on behalf of the people and one male goat is offered for sin and two male lambs are offered for peace so I want you to kind of take a step back from these these directions And look at what it is that the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost is really supposed to make the people think of. First of all, it's to make them think of God's provision. Right? Do you see that there? Uh, It was a celebration of what God had offered, what God had provided, what God had given them in blessing. You've got an offering that is supposed to make them think about their sin and God taking care of their sin, and an offering that is made in order to make them think of peace. It is always interesting to me when Jesus takes his feast and he essentially takes the same ideas and emblems from the Old Testament and applies them to the New Testament story. We see this in... Passover right when Jesus dies right there at the time of the Passover was a time when it was a remembering that God allowed there them to be passed over from punishment that he was giving to the world okay The, the the passing over of that death that he offered to the firstborn sons of Egypt through the killing of the lamb and the blood being sprinkled or spread on the door well Jesus takes that that scenario that feast and it applies to him because because of him being the lamb that was sacrificed we have God not giving us the punishment we deserve because of the death of the lamb see how that works we kind of have the same thing here with Pentecost that in Pentecost we're remembering that God is the great provider he is the one who gives us the blessing that God is the one who cares and takes care of our and and that God is the one who gives peace Well, what does God do in the beginning of the church but give people an opportunity for peace by giving them a chance to have their sins taken care of all through God's provision I don't think it's an accident that the church began when it began. I think this would have been an easy for the disciples to make on this day so that these people who were there to celebrate Pentecost, they could say, hey, Jesus was the Passover lamb, and now we are celebrating Pentecost through the beginning of the church and having our sins taken away of and being made in peace with God. Regardless of whether you think all of that uh, symbolism is intentional. Now, that is bad formatting that I should have looked at before I uh, put it up there on the screen. I want to read to you Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. You are to celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God with a freewill offering that you give in proportion to how the Lord your God has blessed you. Rejoice before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to have his name dwell. You and your sons and daughter and your male and female slave and the Levite within your city gates as well as the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow among you. Essentially it says anybody who is with you in your house, you are to together celebrate the bountiful harvest and blessings of God together. And what do we see the disciples doing here on the day of Pentecost? But gathering together to remember the bountiful blessings of God and experience the sin, or the sin erasing and the peace that comes from following him. I, I don't think it's an accident that the disciples, Jews, are together celebrating this Pentecost in the upper room. But we know that that's not the only thing that happens. Right away, we're told that there's this amazing sound, this violent and rushing wind that comes in. And without looking at all these passages of Scripture, you find that the power of wind is often a reference to God's ability to control. Over in Exodus 10 and Psalm 18 and Isaiah 11, again and again through the Old Testament, you've got... God using the sound of mighty wind or the, the power of wind to display his own particular ability to be in control of our, of our world. I, I don't think it's an accident that that's the sound they hear. A wind is often a reference to life, like over in the book of Job. And you've got the, the, the word there, wind, also means Breath. So this could be translated a violent and rushing breath is what they heard. And maybe that is in reference to the the concept that we have in scripture often where God breathed this breath of life into Adam and Jesus breathed the spirit into the apostles over in John chapter 20. Not only that, you've got these tongues like flames of fire fire. I was talking to Barry and Sarah about this this morning. I, you know, every time I've ever seen this pictured or even talked about it, I've done this. Okay? And y'all know what I mean because we've all done this. When we talk about Acts chapter 2, the little tongues of fire dancing over their head, right? I've become convinced that that's probably not what this looked like. It is interesting to me that this is called a baptism of fire, right? John the Baptist prophesied that that's exactly what they were going to go through. That they there is one who comes after me who baptizes in fire and spirit. Uh, we have Peter who later talks about the the family of Cornelius, and he says they have received baptism like we received in the beginning. And so Peter refers to this as a baptism, the baptism of the Spirit or the baptism of fire. Well, what is baptism? We better know the answer to this, right? It's immersion. I I don't know that this was a tiny little candle flame flickering over their heads as much as it was an engulfing in flame. And that engulfing in flames was a was a picture to them. They they might not have been able to see it happen to themselves, but they would have seen it happen to everyone else, right? And they watched one another get engulfed in these flames and hear this mighty rushing wind. And I think it was to show them that God was present. You know, fire is often associated with the presence of God. Turn with me to some of these passages. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. You've got the story of Moses in the burning bush. Here in the burning bush, it says he was up in the wilderness. Uh, he, he's up at the on Horeb, the mountain of God, and it says, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. And he wondered, Why is the bush not burning up? A little bit later, Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. I want to read verse 21 and 22. It says, The Lord went ahead of them, and a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day, and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night, so that they could travel day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. Chapter twenty-four, verse seventeen, Exodus twenty-four seventeen. Here we're told the appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain and he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. What are we told over in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 29? Again a reference to The mountain of God and the delivery of the covenant and how much greater our covenant is. And it says, for our God is a consuming fire. It's interesting to me how often fire is associated with God's presence. That God is there. That God is revealing his presence to his people. And I don't think there's any difference here in Acts chapter 2. This engulfing flame that surrounded them was an identifier for them. That God has shown up. What is it they've been waiting for since the ascension of Jesus? They've had... Uh, from, from really 50 days now, they've waited since Jesus died on the cross. A couple or three days later, they see Jesus rise from the dead. They've got several appearances of Jesus over the course of the next several days. Uh, and then they have Jesus ascend into heaven, and then now they're waiting. They've been told, wait, wait until God shows up. And what happens? God shows up. And he shows up in a unmistakable way, a way that would have been so easy to understand for these people. Uh, You also have several passages in Scripture that deal with the concept of fire being associated with purification. Uh, The idea of uh, fire being the, the, the... the refiner's fire is the way it's often talked about i don't know i i I put that up there because i've heard people use that as a concept for here that maybe that is part of what's going on here is symbolic that god is purifying these apostles for the sake of doing his ministry i don't know that that's true at this point One of the reasons I don't know that that is true is because when you have the similar story over in Acts chapter 10 where Cornelius has the same sort of baptism that these guys have here at Pentecost, what is Cornelius expected to immediately do after he receives the Holy Spirit? Well, he commands them... To be baptized. Well, what's the purpose of baptism but to purify us, to wash away our sin? So I don't know that fire here has that same purpose. I, I think we're pretty safe in saying that fire displays the presence of God to these people, in a, to a people who are waiting for the presence of God. You also, uh, again, this, like I said earlier, this was what was promised was going to happen. Look at these three passages with me. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. You've got John the Baptist going around baptizing people. And he says here, chapter 3, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I find that significant because some have have had a little bit of a problem with that because, well, that didn't happen to everyone. Not everybody was baptized with fire. So who is he speaking to here if this only happened to the apostles? But I will say it does seem, based on John chapter 1, that some of the apostles, before they were apostles, were disciples of John. John himself sent some of those disciples to Jesus because they had already been following after John. And so I don't think it is a hard case to make that some of those disciples would have heard John's words there. Acts chapter 1 verse 5. We'll read verse 4 and 5 for the sake of context. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. Which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Well, what did John often include with the concept of being baptized with the Holy Spirit? Being baptized with fire. And then, of course, as I mentioned already, over in Acts chapter 11, when Peter is reporting to the other Jews exactly what had happened when he was at Cornelius' house... He himself said, this is what happened. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them, just as on us at the beginning. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how can I possibly hinder God? And so we've got this baptism of the Holy Spirit that happens here in Acts chapter 2 that I think is of utmost importance, and we're going to come back to this concept again and again as we go through the book of Acts and talk about the different stories and the role that the Holy Spirit plays through the book of Acts. Uh, You also have, right after this, odd miracle of sorts where all of the sudden... The Jews staying in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven, when they heard the loud noise, so it wasn't just the disciples that heard it, all these Jews came running. They want to know what in the world has just happened. And, of course, they confront the apostles. They hear the apostles speaking in all of these different languages, and they notice that it's their own languages. If you look back in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 7, they were astounded and amazed saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native languages? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. I find that an interesting miracle right here. You know, they're amazed because this is a group of Galileans, and the assumption here is that this is a group of uneducated Galileans. These aren't men who are studious academics who have studied all of these various languages, and therefore they have just this uh, trained ability to be able to speak the acts of God in our languages— No, these are Galileans. These are the uneducated. They shouldn't be able to do this. But what I love here is that it seems to be a story of contrast with another story about different languages back in Genesis chapter 11. You remember back in Genesis chapter 11, you got a group of people who have completely and utterly defied what God has commanded them to do. God told the people be fruitful and multiply whenever they came off the ark knowing his family and all the descendants to come after him they were to be fruitful multiply and fill the earth to the remotest parts of the earth they were to go travel get to those different places but there was a group that decided they weren't going to do that they decided they were going to build a more or less a a watchtower, a, a large tower, which as long as they lived inside of that tower, they knew exactly where to come back. They were going to build a city with a tower in its middle, and then they could not spread out and fill the earth. And so when God came down and saw what they were doing, it made them upset. He confused their languages so that they could not understand each other. And they would, uh, the assumption is they divided up into language groups, and spread out all over the earth, just like God had commanded them to do. Well, God confused their languages because he wanted them to disperse. It's interesting that in this story, God unites their languages by the power of the Holy Spirit because he wants his people to become one again. He doesn't want the division. He wants everybody united but he wants them united based on the works, the mighty acts of God. And so God uses this miracle, and this miracle that continues to happen as you move forward because many different Christians gain the ability to speak in tongues. He used this ability to unite a foreign people. This is hard for us to, I think, truly grasp. I I know it is for me. I've always lived where everybody speaks English. Always. The one exception to that is that we lived in Tiffany's hometown for about eight years, and about 50% of the community was Hispanic. But probably, I would say, 25-30% 25-30% of them could speak English or at least broken English and you could communicate with them. But we did have a couple of Spanish speaking folks come and worship with us and we went through a lot of, uh, of difficulties to try to help include them. Uh, I knew a few, uh, a preacher who was uh, bilingual and so he talks for us in English Spanish and so we would read Take Lord's supper with us, and you know same message, but in English and in Spanish. We we bought sp- uh, Spanish hymnals, and we put them in the pews, and we would probably, of our six or seven songs we would sing, we would probably sing about two of them in Spanish. Uh, so all of us English-speaking folks are just doing our best to sing this language that so we don't have a clue what we're saying. But they were the same tunes, same as what our English versions say. It was odd that we actually sounded better in Spanish than we did in English. I I don't know what that says about our singing there at that congregation, but it it was interesting. I I do remember that we had a of, of young men who were bilingual who would come up in the afternoons while we worshiped and they would teach Bible classes In Spanish for about an hour and a half And I encouraged our whole congregation And I went quite often And I sat there and I listened to The Bible classes In Spanish Maybe picking up one every Twenty words Because I was in college for Spanish At the time trying to learn Enough to be able to communicate In that community uh, With those who spoke Spanish Uh, it, It was I'll be honest, it was encouraging in some ways. I couldn't imagine having to worship without understanding a thing of what was being said. Uh, We used to worship with a gentleman who got transferred in his job down to South America for, I think, nine months. And he had to travel an hour and a half by about six different buses to get from where he lived for his job to the closest congregation where he could worship with them, he said it was um, not only a lot of hassle. Their their communion was was green grapes instead of red grapes. He said he never did get used to that. You know, having to take communion with white juice instead of red juice, uh, but that's what they had, so that's what he did. And uh, you know, he he said it was it was just it was hard to motivate himself to go to worship for that much trouble, with that much travel, and not understand a word of what was said the entire time. If we lived in a community in different languages, that'd be very difficult. We take for granted the fact that everyone we're going to come across is going to speak English. And I'll be honest, we're kind of so spoiled that if someone doesn't speak English, we don't feel like we need to waste our time. But what if you lived in a place where if you were to drive 30 miles that way, you're with people who don't know your language and you don't know theirs? What do you do? Now, in modern age, we've ways to overcome that, but back in the first century, they didn't. This was the only way the church was going to be able to thrive the way it did. And God knew that. And God provided that from the very first moment that the Holy Spirit came to God's people. With this newfound ability, Peter preaches Jesus. He's accused of being drunk. You know, some sneered in verse 13, said they're, they're drunk on new wine. Peter stands up and says, it's not late enough in the day for that. And regardless, this is exactly what we should expect to happen because of what Joel says over in Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32. He doesn't say Joel 2, 28 through 32. They didn't have chapter numbers and verses yet. He just quotes the whole thing. But he quotes and says, And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, I wonder how many times these disciples in that upper room had discussed this very passage over the past week. Being told, go wait in Jerusalem for the spirit that will be poured out on you how many times they've thought, will the sun really darken? Will the moon really turn to blood? What will it be like for all of us to start prophesying? How is this going to work? I-, I wonder how much discussion they had had based on our sermon this morning on these passages of scripture while they were up there waiting. Waiting. And then when the Spirit comes, and all of a sudden they're able to speak in all these languages, and they're seeing the power of God and the signs on the earth below being demonstrated before all of these thousands of people in the streets of Jerusalem. Just how amazing that would have been. How faith-building that would have been. How courage-building that would have been for Peter. So he goes on and he preaches a sermon. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This, Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. He goes on and shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy based on Psalm 16, verses 8-11. And he shows that Jesus truly is the Messiah because of the way he resurrected. Read with me down in verse 29. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God was, had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. I love that. He shows that this Jesus was the promised king they'd all been waiting for the one that had the ability to sit on the throne forever. Well, that one needed to have the ability to overcome death if he was going to be on a throne forever. He had to be someone who could not experience decay, someone who would not be left in a tomb. Well, the only person we can say that about is Jesus. And so... Peter takes the chance to prove that the very one they'd all been waiting for for so very long was the very Jesus that had been attested to them by signs and miracles and teachings and death and resurrection. And then he drops that moment of truth. The very end of the sermon, verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah you killed him you killed him this could have gone a lot of different ways later on when Stephen preaches a similar lesson it says they were pierced to the heart and they gnashed their teeth at him and drug him out of the city to stone him. Here it says they are pierced to the heart and they ask, brothers, what should we do? I love all of the statements made in the rest of this chapter. They say, what should we do? It says, those who had received his word talks about those who were baptized, that they were continually devoted, that they kept feeling a sense of awe as they watched the things that were happening around them and hearing the teachings that they were hearing. It says all those who had believed, they day by day continued with one mind and that they were praising God. That's, An incredible beginning of a church. That's an incredible beginning. Because what that does, what that shows us, is that this was not a group of people who were merely following ritual. They were there just doing what they were expected to do. Peter's sermon ended with changed, convicted, and committed hearts. And that's what made the church so very powerful. These weren't people who were just taking their next step of faith, which I wonder if that's not true of some of us sometimes. These weren't people who were just doing what they were doing because it's what was expected of them. These were people who did, who made the response that they made because their hearts were pierced through. They felt like they received the death blow. That's why I love that description, that they were pierced to the heart. Obviously, I've never experienced it, although I used to tell people I had. Uh, When I was a baby, my lungs burst six times. And they had to put chest tubes in me, and one of the chest tubes that they had to stick in me was right here. And I know that because... I have no muscle right under that one scar and the skin itself is, is indented there. Not because I have a lot of muscle around it, it's just, I think it's attached to the bone, I'm not really positive. But because there's a scar there and an indention there, when I was in school and let's say I was in the locker room and I had my shirt off, people would go, oh man, look at that scar, did you get shot? I'd be like, yeah, I got shot right in the heart. Yeah, you're a real smart fella right there. <laughs> but it's what it looks like. These people at Pentecost, shot in the heart, they felt like they were dead. I mean, they were so hit with their guilt and what they had done, that they knew there was no coming back from that. And at that point, you ask, what shall I do? How do I get forgiveness for this? How do I overcome killing the Messiah? And then Peter gives them hope. Repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And you'll receive the gift, or you'll receive repent or remission of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. I, can you imagine being one of those people at Pentecost and you have just heard, I did the worst thing possible thing that could ever be done on earth and then right after that you hear but here's how you make it right here's how you, you, you get past the fact that God should be so mad at you that there's no coming back from this and all of a sudden you go from feeling like you've received the death blow to feeling like you have hope I. That's what makes this story so powerful. It's that Peter gave hope to people who realized they had none. And when they responded to that, we know about 3,000 of them that day were baptized. And we know at the very end of the chapter, it says day by day, the Lord was adding to the number those who were being saved. It's a great beginning, isn't it? It's a great picture of what the real church is. You see, we, we often think of the church in terms of organization. And we think of the church in terms of what we do and gathering together and our location or, or the group of people who are here. I think we need to reframe it slightly. Not not that any of those things are necessarily wrong, but I, I think they're incomplete. You know what the church really is? People who are convicted that God is their only hope. That's what the church really is. That that that's it. I believe that that's what's been so distressing to me over the past year of 2020 that I've seen so many people who had, for whatever reason, put their hope in something other than God. And I wonder, is that really people of the church? Is the church really a group of people who have now placed their hope in politics or in society or in in medicine or in all of these other things? The truth is... Our only hope is found in Jesus. That's it. We've got to get back to that. We've got to get back to that being the way we understand things. That's what made the church so grand and made it grow so much. The reason they didn't mind going from house to house and talking about Jesus, and they didn't mind putting their necks on the line to talk about Jesus, and they didn't mind the possibility of being thrown into an arena and having to fight lion because of Jesus. They didn't mind because they knew real hope wasn't found in the flesh. It was found in their faith. Real hope wasn't found in this life. It was found in the next one. I hope we can get back to that. I hope that's where we find ourselves thinking, by default, God is our hope. That's why I love that this whole thing happened on the day of Pentecost. A day that reminded them that God was the provider of all of their blessings. That God was the one who... dealt with their sin that God was the one who gave them peace because he did the same thing through Jesus if you've not found your hope in Jesus uh, just like he, he prophesied there from Joel that that day would come where they would now be able to call on the name of the Lord for their salvation that's what we can do too We can call on the name of the Lord. And like Ananias told Paul later on when we get there, later in the year, he tells him, arise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I encourage you to do the same thing. Call on the name of the Lord through being immersed. Let him be the one to give you hope. And never let your hope be anything else. And if you're a child of God here who has found yourself placing your hope elsewhere, Please repent. Please turn away from that. And place your hope back in Jesus and God and salvation in heaven. Place your hope where it belongs. And if we can help you with that and pray for you in that, we want to do so. But you've got to let us. If you need the invitation to get your life right in some way, please come forward and let us know as we stand and sing this song. Hosanna. Thanks for listening and studying God's Word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's Word with us, Please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.